You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. John chapter 6, we've been working our way through uh, John's gospel, and we've seen some very uh, miraculous things take place in the sixth chapter of John. Jesus feeds the the 5,000. He walks on water. And now he's using these two experiences in the life of this multitude who has tracked him down uh, the next day. And he's using these things, he's pointing to them as, as signs that are pointing to him. It's really uh, very uh, fascinating when you read uh, the, the whole thing uh, together. We are taking uh, some, some chunks of it. We're digging into it. But I, I want you to, to kind of see the, the, the flow. That what happens here in, in verse 30 in Jesus' declaration that I am the bread of life in the, in the passage that we're talking about uh, cannot be uh, divorced or removed from Jesus feeding the 5,000. The, the two things uh, go together, and I hope uh, we draw that out and you see that as, as we go on uh, here. So let's, let's stand together as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Just back up just a little bit. Jesus says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, we approach your word, and we pray that you would bless its reading, bless its preaching. Lord, we pray that you would be the one that guide us as, guides us to truth. We pray that it is Jesus that is exalted today. And we pray that our hearts are changed and, and transformed and, and open to see the, the beauty of Jesus as the bread of life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when it comes to the Old Testament, I would say, uh, generally speaking... We are uh, fairly illiterate. But at the same time, there are parts of the Old Testament that we're familiar with, like 
generally uh, the, the Psalms, Genesis, Joshua, Isaiah. And I, I say this, generally speaking, that, that some of the books that we are least familiar with are probably the, the minor prophets, save Jonah, we know that story. But these minor prophets, they're smaller books at the end of the Old Testament. They're a bit difficult. And of course, they're called minor prophets. And they're not called minor because they're not as important as the other books of the Bible, specifically the major prophets. But still, some might think that. They're short. They're not that important. In any case, the minor prophets are very important. I just want to draw your attention to the prophet Amos for a moment. We read that portion of John 6. This whole section is centered around bread and food. Listen to the words of Amos in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east and shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Of course, the people in Amos' day didn't understand what a privilege it was to, to hear from God. It's a tragic case of you don't know what you have until it's gone. As one commentator wrote, he said, it's the neglected word becomes the absent word. It's a scary thought, isn't it? I'm not saying that this prophecy is being fulfilled today, but I would say that there is a principle here that we certainly see. We have seen the, the word of God in our nation, in our world, be neglected on a grand scale. We have watched as people who should have known better, who know what the Bible says, just outright neglect it. They've made laws that are in direct contradiction to the word of God. Laws concerning the definition of marriage or the advocacy of abortion. Laws that clearly neglect the counsel of God's word. And I find it ironic that these still people, that these people still have a great hunger for truth. In our recent history, this has been uh, probably uh, illustrated very clearly uh, in the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, uh, during the pandemic, what was highlighted is how much we don't really know. Things uh, in one uh, instance were pretty fluid. At least that's what we look back and see. One day we seem to know one thing, but things would change in a short time. But there were, and there are so many people that, that cling to, to science. This hunger, this great hunger for truth. So for some, the, the, the Center for Disease Control became almost a, a spiritual uh, attraction. This is where truth was found. We, we have to, this is our allegiance is, is to them. 
And, and for others, it wasn't the CDC. They, they, they started mistrust, mis, uh, they, 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 they started to, to not trust them for one reason or another. And it might have been that somebody else had offered a, a different take on the science. And they started to follow them. My point here isn't to be political. My point is that the pandemic, at least for a short time, was a great illustration of people's hunger for truth. We saw that clearly because this was truth related to, to one issue that was front and center and extremely uh, divisive on many levels. But even without a pandemic, there is still a great hunger for truth. Great hunger for truth when it comes to uh, the ultimate questions of life, like what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? Is there a God and what happens when I die? Now, of course, we know that the answer to this hunger, because we've read this in, in John so far, we know that the answer for this hunger for truth is found in, in Jesus Christ. Jesus says it later in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. These questions are satisfied in Jesus Christ. I like that, that language of, of being satisfied when it comes to Jesus. We find our, our satisfaction in him, just as the people were satisfied in the bread that he fed them the day before. I can't help but look at people who have this great hunger, but yet come to some uh, crazy conclusions, especially these, uh, when it comes to these ultimate questions and realize that they've, they've neglected the word so it's become absent and when we think about it it's such a, a tragedy that Jesus is right there he's the answer to this hunger yet men and women they don't come to him they go to all sorts of other places but not him and he's there and he says whoever comes to me whoever believes I will satisfy you. We talked about this a little bit last time. That, that people search. Their souls are, are restless. And often people even search for Jesus, but they do so wrongly. If you remember, Jesus makes this point. The crowd asked Jesus essentially, how did you get over to this side without us seeing you? And Jesus turns to why they came there in the first place. He said that they were thinking about their bellies, the physical food that he gave them the day before. It was interesting to me that the potato bake was last week because there was this great emphasis on physical food and there was this, this, this pull, right? We're, we're focused on this one thing, but yet we're seeing that it's kind of an illustration of what these people were we're thinking there's this emphasis on physical food that the miracle that was taking place I'm not saying the potato bake was a miracle but it was close that's my way of complimenting you good job good job <laughs> but in our text we see this this emphasis on physical food the day before when Jesus fed the multitude and this emphasis on the physical food was supposed to be a sign. It was, a point to, it was supposed to point uh, to himself as one who could bring a true satisfaction to the human soul. 
And here Jesus is, is telling the people, you, you missed the sign. You missed the point. You're coming across here. You're searching for me. You, you, you made your way and you found me. And all you're thinking about is more food, more physical food. So Jesus tells them to, to not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the son of, which, which the Son of Man is going to give them. Now, you can tell that their curiosity is piqued. He fed them the day before. Now they have come to him again. He's promising uh, food that endures to eternal life. Then they ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, how do we, how do we get this? And Jesus' answer is that the work of God is to believe in him who he has sent. Now at this point in the conversation, we need to say a word about works. Notice how this has come up in this text. In verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I mean, just take that, kind of rip it out of its context for a second. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. If we just stop there, it sounds a little bit problematic, doesn't it? It sounds like work to obtain eternal life. But we know that's not what Jesus is saying. In that same verse, he says that this food that endures to eternal life is something that the Son of Man will give you. It isn't worked for, but it is given. You see that in there? Notice then, after Jesus says that the Son of Man will give them this food, their attention goes back to works. What must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a strange question, but John brings out the point here very plainly. Their minds were on doing something. What are these works of God that we must be doing in order to be given this eternal life? And Jesus answers this question and he sticks with the language of works. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. His answer there echoes Acts 16 in the Philippian jailer. Remember his questions? Sir, what must I do to be saved? I think this is what Jesus is getting at here. Do you want, you want to know what you do? Here's what you do. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So here's the, here's the rub. We're saved by faith apart from works. Romans 3.28 says it this way. For we hold that one is justified, saved, made right with God, saved by faith apart from works of the law. So the question then becomes, what is a work? I've had some interesting conversations with people over the years. They will say something like, well, you tell me that we're saved not by our works, but then you tell me that I need to do something. I need to believe and to repent. How does that work? How does that fit together? Let me just complicate this a little bit by making a, a reference to Acts chapter 17. Paul, in, in this great sermon, speaking of this statue to the unknown God, Paul is, is proclaiming the, the Lord to them, and he says that God previously overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands everyone, everywhere to repent. He commands you to what? Do something. To repent. I've talked with people that, that believe that, 
one does not have to repent in order to be saved because that is a work. One might think, well, that's not, repentance isn't required for salvation. Repentance falls under a different category. It falls under uh, sanctification or Christian growth. Therefore, it isn't essential. And, and we see to try to work it that way. So what this, this person does is essentially pit faith and repentance against one another. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through belief, but it doesn't come through repentance because that would be a work. Some go further and say something like, well, you're telling me I must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You're telling me that I have to believe in him to be saved, and if I do not believe, then I'm going to hell. How is that not a work? How is that not something I must do? How do we deal with this? I, I think some of these conversations really have gone off the rails because we are conflating the work of God in the life of the Christian with something that we contribute or something that we do. For instance, we think of repentance in terms of if I repent, then God saves me. Or if I believe in Jesus, then he saves me. If this, then this. If I do this, then God does that. And if that's the case, if we just leave it there with no explanation, nothing else, then yes, we're contributing something. We contribute our belief. He contributes our justification. It's not what the Bible says. The truth is, and the Bible, I believe, is very clear on this, that one cannot believe unless they have been given new life by God. There is no belief, there is no repentance, no faith, apart from the work of regeneration. Or the sovereign work of God in the life of an individual, whereby they are taken from death, or an object of God's wrath, to life, spiritual life, and has been an object of God's grace and mercy. One who has been given this spiritual life responds naturally. And that is in faith and repentance. One reason we speak of faith and repentance together is that they're two different sides of the same coin. In theology, we call this conversion. This is the response to God's grace in the life of a person. They respond by coming to Christ in faith and leaving their old life behind. Part of faith or belief in Christ is understanding one's own condition apart from Christ. That left to their own devices, there is no remedy for sin. These understand that sin is dangerous, it damns, and we must flee from our sin to the safety and shelter of Christ Jesus. This is repentance. It's to change one's mind about sin. And the truth is, the Christian never forgets this. They must constantly go back to what Christ has done for them to remember the, the heinousness of sin in their life and to continually make repentance a, a part of the Christian walk. So let me make this very clear. Faith and repentance are graces. Augustine prayed, Give what you command and command what you will. That there were those at the time that he wrote that that really took exception to that prayer. They would say, well, if the Lord commands it, 
We must be able to do it. Well, we learn from Romans 3 that there is no one righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. We learn from Ephesians 2 that spiritually we are dead. So dead, how can a dead, spiritually dead person that cannot seek after God be expected to do something spiritual? Like believe or repent. They can't. This happens as a result of God's work in their life. God commands everyone to repent, but the fact is not everyone will repent. And the ones that do repent, do so because they have been brought from death to life. They have been born again. Here, Jesus is telling these people, if, if they want eternal life, you must believe. You have to believe. That is the command. Now, we can get ahead of ourselves a little bit here and go down to verse 36. We read this. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So these have seen Jesus. They've heard the call to believe. But yet, they do not believe. And Jesus explains that those who do not come to him and do not believe are ones, and those who do come to him and do believe are ones the Father has given him. Say it in the positive. And those that come to him, he will never cast out. On one hand, it is commanded to believe. And to believe is to be obedient to the gospel. That's what we must do. This is the work of God, that you must believe in, in his son that he has sent. But we realize that this whole thing happens because of God's grace in the life of this person. God's unmerited favor in bringing them from death to life. Okay, so now we've got, we went back. We went kind of ahead of ourselves. So let's go back to our text in verse 30. So Jesus has just told them to, to believe in him so that the people say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? And we read this and we say, well, wait a minute, Jesus already did a sign. It's the interesting thing here to me is that there's no question in the minds of the people, in the minds of the hearers, that Jesus is, is speaking about himself, that he is the Messiah, and that he's asking the crowd to believe in, in him. They get this, and they get it because they say, what sign do you do that we may what? Believe in you. Jesus is asking them to believe the word of God, God's promise to send a Messiah, the promised one that would free them from the, the curse of sin and death. And they say, well, we again need a sign. In other words, they were familiar with the sign that Jesus did the day before, they weren't dismissing that sign. They weren't saying, well, that wasn't big enough. That wasn't a real sign. That was some trick. I mean, you just five loaves of bread and a couple of fish and you fed 20,000 people. That was just a fluke. They weren't saying that. They, they were not dismissing that as a sign, but they were saying here that they wanted it repeated. And they point to, to Moses and the manna that the people ate, food that was provided for them daily. 
Boy, we have Jesus around, we never have to think about food again. He's always gonna feed us. These, these people were, were familiar with other Jewish writings, the, the Jewish rabbis of the day and, and some of the comments that they were making on religious texts. So this is outside of the Old Testament, but they read uh, things from their Jewish teachers, things like, you shall not find the manna in this age, but you shall find it in the age that is coming. For who has manna been prepared? The righteous that is in the age coming. What did the first redeemer do? He brought down manna. The last redeemer will also bring down manna. This is what the, the rabbis of the day were saying. So these people, they're familiar with these things and, and they're using this Jewish, uh, this Jewish teachings about the, the redeemer to, to manipulate Jesus into giving them what they wanted. Now remember why these people came to find Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus makes it very clear. You came, why? Because of your belly. Do we think that this sign that they were asking Jesus for to feed them again is a coincidence to the fact that they were hungry? That they followed Jesus just to get fed? I don't think so. What was in their hearts, what Jesus revealed in, in verse 27 was still there. The fact is these people were not interested in, in messianic blessing, but they wanted to manipulate Jesus into giving them what they wanted all along. Jesus had said that he was God's gift to humanity and that they should believe on him to have eternal life. And they said... Why would we believe in you unless you give us a sign? Feed us over and over and we will believe. Jesus did it before. Why couldn't he do it again and again and again? It was manipulation, religious manipulation. Our, hey, our, our theologians, they're telling us what the Messiah, when he shows up, that he's going to give us bread. Never mind, Jesus had just done that, but it wasn't good enough. We want more. I love how Jesus responds. He doesn't give any credibility to the arrogant question. He overlooked their suggestion and commented on the real issue. And he says, amen, amen, or listen, listen. This is really important. It wasn't Moses that gave you bread from heaven. That was God. It was God's miracle, not Moses's. Second, that manna was not the true bread from heaven. Look at verse 32. Jesus is pointing to the fact that the manna that God brought down for the people in the wilderness was God's work, and it was a sign. It pointed to the true bread from heaven, and that is Jesus Christ himself. These people, they, they had missed the sign the day before, a sign in which they should have understand. They should have understood that, that Jesus was providing physical sustenance for them, and it, and it pointed to a, a much more important spiritual reality, that spiritual sustenance, true spiritual satisfaction is only found in Christ. He is the, the life giver. He is the, the bread of life. He's the spiritual food that truly satisfies the hunger in the human soul. Jesus goes on. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, Jesus is pointing toward himself. He's come down from heaven. He is the true bread from heaven that satisfies spiritual hunger. And now these, these people should feel a little bit sheepish at this point. They should say something like, man, we, we were thinking mere, merely with, with materialized. We, we missed the, the spiritual reality that was right in front of us all the, the time. We, we missed the fact that, that Jesus is the source of, of spiritual life that he truly satisfies. Jesus, he doesn't give. Of course, the people didn't see it that way. And Jesus doesn't give any credibility to their manipulation in that they brought this whole manna thing up in order to get Jesus to feed them. This, yeah, we'll believe in you. Just continue to feed us. These people, they were intelligent. And perhaps they, they manipulated people to get what they wanted before. And perhaps this wasn't the first time. I, I remember a, a guy, I, I was reading some of this, and I remembered a guy from, from youth camp when I was a kid. Uh, he came with a friend. He wasn't a, a churchgoer. He wasn't a believer. But he met a girl at church camp. And all of a sudden, he became a totally different guy. His language changed. All of a sudden, he cared about people. He cared about the things of God. He went to church. He started doing all of these things and the girl didn't see through it at first and she started to date him. He put on quite a charade. But then after a while, after a time they broke up, he lost interest in the things of God. His language went back to vulgar. It was a, it was a manipulation. She felt betrayed. There's a, a video circulating about a so-called pastor of a, a large church in, in Tennessee and he says that demons revealed to him several witches in his church, some of which were in his wife's Bible study. I mean, with that information, you could find out the guy if you wanted to, but wait till after church before you Google it. In the part I, I watched, he, he went to great lengths, though, to convince the congregation that he wouldn't lie about something like this. That the, the devil sent them to, to ruin his church and it was this pastor who was the, the savior of it, apparently because uh, this demon told him something about the people that were in his church. I have several problems with all of this, but here's one. All of this was a tactic to, to manipulate people in his congregation into thinking that he was some special gift to them. That he can discern these things. That people should come to him as the source of spiritual sustenance in a sense because he has a front row seat to the supernatural. There are many people out there who have an agenda. They use Jesus to get what they want. They use Jesus to get credibility for themselves. They use him to get power. In the case of our text, they use him to get more food. I love, though, that Jesus just turns attention back to himself. It isn't about all these other things. It's about me. Look to me. That's what Jesus says. The problem with this pastor that I mentioned is, among many other things, is self-exaltation. It's about himself, not Christ. The pastor's job is to not get all wrapped up into politics. To spend literally hours ranting on mask mandates and the evils of vaccines. Whatever the pastor thinks. His job is to help people see Christ as presented in the scriptures. 
And here we see Jesus do what every Christian, and especially this pastor, should be doing. We turn the distraction around to the person of Jesus Christ. Wait a moment, Jesus said. The bread here points to something greater. He's saying it over and over and over. And some of you are saying, boy, these, these, these messages in, in John chapter 6, they're, they're kind of repetitive. We've heard about the bread of life thing. Even though Jesus hasn't said those words in the text we read, I am the bread of life, we keep hearing about it. Jesus is, is pointing. This is a sign. It's pointing to himself. The bread the day before, the manna, hundreds of years before this, all pointed to whom? Pointed to Jesus. Listen to what John MacArthur says at this point. He says, you know as well as I know that I could manipulate people with stories. I mean, you could tell tear-jerking stories that affect emotional, and emotional trauma on people. You can move people with things other than the scriptures, but you're working on their feelings and not on their mind. If the message is scripture and the preacher is to preach the message, he has to preach the scripture. And preaching the scripture means you must expose the word. You must make Christ known. The preacher, his job is not to force people to yield through some manipulative process. His job is to make them comprehend the word of God which will save them, sanctify them, and strengthen them. Jesus says this. People say, sir, give us this bread always. Again, <laughs> is this idea of again and again, right? You did it once, keep doing it. Give, give us this, give us this, right? Eternally, you're always going to give us this bread? Do it. We never have to worry about food again. This is great. And Jesus reiterates the command to believe in him. And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, Jesus is making it abundantly clear. It is Jesus that satisfies, not the physical bread. That satisfies for a time. Now we mentioned a few weeks ago that we have a difficult time understanding the reference to, to food in the first century. When we are hungry, we go to the fridge, we might not get exactly what we want, but we get something that satisfies. We might even go through a drive-thru. There, there are restaurants all over the place. It wasn't the same back then. Now today we, we often, and I still think about this, that, that bread and milk are, are staples of, the, of our diet, of our life. When one's gone for a while and they come home, they make sure they at least have bread and milk in the fridge. Today, though, bread has fallen on some kind of hard times between gluten and keto. Um, it isn't the staple that it once was. When Jesus said that he was the bread of life here, he is saying this in a specific context, and we need to understand a few things about bread during this time to understand why Jesus is making this reference, why Jesus is using bread to point to himself. Before I do that, I want to make a point that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, this is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life here in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8 and 9. I am the gate in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And I am the true vine in chapter 15. 
I want to spend some time talking about that phrase, I am, and I think we're going to do that. It is important. We're going to do that later. But for now, let's just think about bread and why Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. First thing that we need to understand is that bread during this time was seen as necessary for life. It was a necessity. I know we don't think that way today. We look at bread and we see carbs and then ask the question, do we really need them? But in Jesus' day, it was probably the only staple in most people's diets. For somebody during this time, if you didn't eat bread, the alternative was death. So Jesus here is claiming to be the, the one that people could not live without. And I think there is an important question for us here. If Jesus is the bread of life, and this bread is necessary for life, why is it that, that you try to live your life on your own so often? Why do you think that, that you know what is best in your life? Why is it that we so often think that we can take care of ourselves the best? We say that we need Jesus. We need him, but do we really live that way? The fact is, we cannot live without him. Later on, Jesus is going to make that point very clear in, verse, in chapter 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father apart from me. We need him. You can't do without him. You can't be left on your own. Another thing that we must realize about bread is that it was understood to be suited for everyone. Bread was, was suited for everyone. Everyone ate bread. It was a staple of, of, of the diet. The fact is, Jesus is suited for everyone, whether people realize it or not. And obviously, some will never realize that. I had a conversation with one once, and he said that, he was so glad to hear that I had a, a relationship with Jesus, that I was a Christian. He was genuinely happy, and he went on and on and on. And I thought, boy, this guy's going to tell me that he's a believer. But he went on to, to tell me that he had found something that worked for him. He went on to, to tell me that he knew that he was going to be okay. That he was going to be okay apart from Christ because he had a belief and he was sincere. The fact is, Jesus is the bread of life. There's no other. Everyone needs Jesus, whether they realize it or not. He's suited for everyone. The third thing that we should understand about bread during this time is that it was eaten daily. It was eaten daily. What we've been talking about so far is, is initially trusting in, in Christ. But now there's this little change. We're going to change things a little bit and start thinking, when we start thinking about bread, not as something that people eat once or once in a while as a special meal, but it's a, a daily staple in one's diet. When a person comes to faith in Christ, this is, this is just the start. In fact, we were talking about this Wednesday evening in the Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, he, he finally makes it to the cross as his burden is released and it rolls away down into a, a sepulcher never to be uh, seen again. He's free, and right there at the foot of the cross, he meets three guys who are sleeping in chains. He tries to talk to them. He tries to evangelize them. He tries to help them out of the situation that they're in, but they're just content to stay. 
And this is how it is with many. They, they come to Jesus, but then they, they do not feed on him daily. They, they, as Derek Thomas says, they just put their Christian lives on cruise control. They just don't give him much thought. This is the, the petition in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our, our daily bread. The fact is, Jesus is what's satisfied. We need to come to him, to learn from him. Let him instruct us. We, we need to see how he has come to, to save us. How we are united with him. We come to him for strength. And I'm not speaking about some subjective thing. Some people would say something like, well, we can be instructed at the feet of Christ in so many ways. And they go on with this list of everything under the sun except for the scriptures. And we said this last week, and I'll say it again. We find Christ in the scriptures. So many Christians today remain spiritually hungry because they do not understand this. We find Christ in the scriptures and we feed on him. A fourth thing that we need to understand about bread is that people saw bread as producing growth. It makes sense if you think about it. If bread was, was this important, people ate it daily, it was life-giving. It was there for their nourishment. It makes sense that it would produce growth. Do you want to grow in your faith? Feed on Jesus. Come to the scriptures. They're all about him. Learn from him. Let him nourish you. Let him grow you. We as people today, we look for many things as a source for nourishment and growth. We look to other people. We look to other books about the Bible. We look to podcasts about great things. Sometimes we actually start looking to these things in other people as a source of nourishment. These people that were talking to Jesus in our text, they were getting some of their, their information from the, the rabbis of the day. The Messiah will feed the people, give us food, and we will believe in you if you, if you do that. Jesus himself is the source of nourishment. I don't want to be misunderstood. Books and podcasts and sermons from others, I mean, these are, are good things, and I hope you take advantage of the, the technology of the day and you, and you, and you take advantage of, of those things. But the fact is, the, the Christian faith is a historical faith. We shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that the Lord hasn't used others throughout Christian history. The, the truths of the Christian faith, the struggles of those who have gone before us are extremely important. We must not uh, take these things for granted. Arrogance is the one that says that he or she has nothing to learn from the great teachers in Christian history. They have nothing to learn from the events that have gone before us. They, they see the, the creeds and confessions of the church as meaningless because we're alone in our closet with our Bible. My friends, we live in a wonderful time in a lot of ways. A time we have so many who have gone before us that we can actually see how the faith has been preserved, how God has used great men and women to exalt Jesus. And their teaching when it comes to scriptures help us to, to understand, to see Jesus in it more clearly. But just the same, we realize that our nourishment does not come from those other things. True nourishment comes from Christ Jesus as he's presented to us in the scriptures. The more we read, the more we learn, the more we understand the more we are nourished and the more we grow. Let me just say one more thing and I'm going to close. Just think about the process for making bread for a moment. The grain is 
planted, it grows. When it's ready, it's cut down, it's ground into flour, it's prepared, and then it's put in the oven to make the process simple. It's very similar to what has happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, he was born, he grew, he was cut down by sinful men, passed through the fires of God's wrath for our sake. He took our place, he suffered for us. He did that so that you might live. And then we start thinking about that. And the question is, is why would you not come to him? Why would you not come to him and believe that he truly is the bread of life? That he is the the source of nourishment? That he is the one that satisfies the, the restless soul? I mean, over and over in this text, Jesus is, is, is trying to get these people to see. Stop looking elsewhere. Stop trying to manipulate to get what you want. Stop focusing on all of these other things and focus on me. Focus on Jesus. He's where nourishment is found. He's the one that saved your soul. Nothing else. Jesus, he bled, he died for us so that we might have hope, so that we might grow, so that we might find satisfaction, so that our souls might not be restless, so that we might rest in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.